All right, open your Bibles to Amos chapter 4. Maybe the easiest way to find it is go to the book of Matthew and turn left till you get to Amos. (laughs) Or you can go to the front of your Bible and look at the table of contents. No judgment here, all right? Amos chapter 4, what I'm going to do is read the first three verses and skip down to verse 10, read the rest, and then we'll be going through it all as we walk through the sermon. Uh, So follow along with me, start in Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. Lord Yahweh has sworn by His holiness that, Behold, the days are coming upon you, and they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. And you will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares Yahweh. And looking at verse 10, I said, a pestilence among you, After the manner of Egypt, I killed your choice men by the sword, along with your captured horses. And I made the stench of your camp rise up, even in your nostrils. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand delivered from a blaze. Yet, you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into gloom and treads on the high places of the earth, Yahweh, God of hosts, is his name." Clearly, as we continue in the book of Amos, we've come to a chapter that is ramping up the judgment. Uh, We've already looked at several heavy chapters. Uh, Amos chapter 1, talking about the judgment of the nations um, and why God is bringing that judgment. In chapter 2, he flips the script and then directs the judgment at Israel and Judah. And, and then he begins to hone in on Israel. Of course, um, Israel at that time is divided into two uh, different sections, uh, Judah and Israel. So Amos is a shepherd called by the Lord to pronounce judgment. And in some sense, warning. Uh, chapter 3, uh, we have this. Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? The idea, as we learned about on Sunday, you guys got to hear it twice. Um, is that Israel had transgressed the boundaries, walking in the lion's territory. God, Yahweh, is roaring and warning them. And now when we get to chapter 4, he's warning people that perhaps thought they were okay. Maybe even though the war was coming their direction, uh, the lion was going to get someone else. This is what they thought. And so what he is essentially doing here, what God is doing here, is again telling people, hey, the judgment's coming. If you're going to walk down the path of judgment, here are the stops that you're going to make along the way. 
And in some sense, this is a warning. If you stop at this place, no, you're not going in a good direction. If you stop at this place, no, you're not going in a good direction. You keep stopping, and eventually you're going to go past all the way to judgment. And so what I have for us are four stops that the religious make along the path of God's judgment. Four stops that the religious make along the path of God's judgment. And the first stop is this, self-indulgence. And by the way, that's probably my favorite title ever. I, I love that title, The Cows of Bashan. That's a great title, right? Um, self-indulgence is the first stop. We just read it. Hear this word. You cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, Bring now that we may have drink. Lord Yahweh has sworn by His holiness. Behold, the days are coming on you, and they will take you away with meat hooks, the last of you with fish hooks, and you will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to harm, and declares Yahweh. So what is this? You cows of Bashan. Sometimes phrases don't quite read the same way um, in our day as they would have in Amos's day. Um, this sounds like a major insult, right? Um, not the kind of thing that you're going to say to people. Um, you might imagine you know, me on a Sunday, and I'm preaching, and it's getting heavy, and then all of a sudden I, I turn over to the right, and you've got a bunch of women sitting in that section, and I say, Here now, cows of Bashan! Okay, and, and basically I'm going to get thrown out of the pulpit at that moment, and I should. Um, but that's not exactly what was being communicated. Um, he wasn't calling them fat or saying that they're eating the grass too much or anything like that. Um, and it is clear he is talking to the women. Uh, the noun is in the feminine, and then, of course, later it goes on to say, who say to their husbands. So he's talking to the ladies of the group, of the area. But actually, in ancient times, the comparison to a cow would not have been necessarily an insulting image. And this was because cows during that day would have been a kind of status symbol. Uh, the cows of Bashan um, meant you were extremely rich. Uh, you lived in a fertile land. The cows were well-fed, extremely strong, and so were their owners, rich, well-fed, and living it up. They were strong, is the idea. Similar idea expressed in or by David in Psalm 22.12, where he says, Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. So strength is being communicated in some ways. It would be like saying, hear this, Hollywood. Uh, hear this, Wall Street, Washington. And so that's not necessarily an insult. You're directing it to a certain section of the country that are really well off. And so most likely, if you're living in that section, you, you might listen, but you're not necessarily insulted because you're proud of the title. And so that would have been the case for them. In some ways, he is using it to insult, but the insult would have been heard much different than it was in our day. And essentially what he's calling them out for is a life of selfish indulgence, selfishness. He's calling them out for using their strength and their power to line their own pockets at the expense of the poor and the needy. Hence, as he goes on, who oppress the poor, he says, who crush the needy, who say to their husbands, bring now that we may Drink, okay? Poor husbands is what we should all be thinking. 
These women, and undoubtedly their husbands, were exploiting and manipulating the poor of their region so that they might grow rich, more material wealth. Self-centered to the point that they had no concern as to who they were hurting in the process, and in some ways, they probably weren't even thinking about it. They did not care. As he directs this to the women, you could say that all maternal instincts had gone. And so a woman is graced by the Lord with maternal instincts, and so there are emotions for people, uh, connections with people that men most of the time don't have to that extent. And in this region, it had gone. They were the antithesis of Proverbs 31, the woman described there, verse 20. She extends her hand to the poor, and she stretches out her hand to the needy. Proverbs 19.17, He who is gracious to a poor man lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. The Lord highly values those who take what is God's, and God loans us whatever we have, and they share with others. Job, who was a blameless man, this is how he is described, or what he says, Job 31.16, If I have held back the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not eaten from it, but from my youth he grew up with me with the father, as with the father, and from the womb of my mother I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not blessed me, and if he had not been warned with the fleece of my sheep, if I have waved my hand against the orphan, it's kind of like, get away, get out of here, because I saw my help in the gate. Let my shoulder fall from the socket, which sounds painful, and my arm be broken off at the elbow. He's essentially cursing himself. Why did Job extend his hand to help the needy and the poor? He says in verse 23, very next verse, For disaster from God is a dread to me, and because of his exaltedness I can do nothing. In other words, I fear God if I do not share what is his with others. These women had no fear of the Lord. Job had fear of the Lord. He knew God's exalted position. How could he dare use his stuff in a way that was not in line with God's word? Amos confirms, confirms that Job's fears were correct. In Amos 4.2, it says, Lord Yahweh has sworn by his holiness. In other words, what he is about to do is in line with his holiness. His holy word has commanded something. He is the holy standard. So what is that going to be? What's he going to do? Behold, the days are coming on you, and they will take you away with meat hooks. This is very picturesque. And the last of you with fish hooks. Total destruction. You will go out through breaches in the walls. You'll be carried out dead, each one straight before her, lined, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares Yahweh. History records that in some sense Amos' prophecy came true. In 722 B.C., the Assyrians destroyed Samaria and carried its survivors, the few of them remaining, into captivity. 
John Calvin comments on this passage. Now, the first thing this passage shows us is that God requires us to be compassionate and to help our neighbors when they are in need. The New Testament confirms this. James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So who's he talking to there? He's not talking to Wall Street. He's talking to the church, to believers. What good is it, brothers? Can that faith save him? And the rhetorical question and answer is no. He doesn't have faith. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, this is someone in the church. One of you says to them as you walk in the church, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And you go sit down and listen to the sermon. Without giving the things uh, needed for the body, what good is that? It's not any good to that person. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. God expects every one of us who know Christ to share. We've already learned this in Ephesians. No longer steal, but labor, performing with our own hands what is good, so that, what's the reason? We might have something to share with one who has need. Here is a reason that all of you should have a job. Because you are called by God to use your strength. That's the first gift He gives. He gives you strength. He gives you energy so that you might work. And now He's going to give you pay for that work. But what's the reason? So that you might share displaying the love of Christ to other brothers and sisters in need. God requires this of you. So the application clearly of Amos chapter 4, in the first verses here, is that when God blesses, He expects you to share. Or what God gives, He expects you to share. Actually, even stronger, He commands, as we saw in Ephesians, that you share. Now, right now, some of you have very little in comparison, maybe. If you compare it to the rest of the world, maybe not. You have a lot. But you may be thinking to yourself, I only have a little, so here's a suggestion. Be wise with your money and look for opportunities to share. It's easier to share when you have little than when you have a lot. So build that in. And maybe we're not just talking about material wealth. Maybe you're thinking, I don't have a lot of material wealth. I don't, I don't have anything that, that I could share. But there's lots of things you could share. You could share your time. You could share your energy. Uh, you could share lots of things with people. You could share your hospitality. Be hospitable with where you live, those kinds of things. You open up your home or wherever. Look for opportunities to share and to build that kind of characteristic into your life. Look for ways to share. That's probably the best way to avoid the sin of oppressing the poor is to help the poor and to share with them. A second application, though, can be drawn out of this first little section. By turning his attention to the women, God makes it clear that there is no hiding from the coming judgment. Perhaps these women might have thought to themselves, hey, I'm just an innocent victim whose lifestyle is really only made possible by my husband. And actually, they're the ones with the oppressive practices. I'm just the benefactor. But God makes it clear that any participation in partnership with sin, any refusal to denounce that sin, makes you complicit. How complicit? He says, you'll be carried away with 
fish hooks. That's pretty complicit. A modern illustration might be Je Jeffrey Epstein's wife. She was complicit. Maybe she didn't do all of the acts and all that, but complicit. Or perhaps a member of Hitler's army who did not give the order to massacre the Jews, but nevertheless was silent and watching others carry it out. Complicit. And on that great day when the great and small are brought before the great judge, there will be no victims. Everyone is complicit. Everyone who played a part, whatever that part is, will be guilty. The Lord is sworn by His holiness, behold, the days of judgment are coming. They weren't expecting it. They are just living it up, cows grazing in the field. But they should have, because they had God's word, they knew God's word. They had a responsibility as wives to speak up and to help their husbands to say something. They were responsible for their sin. This is one reason why victim theology is so dangerous. Don't blame me, I'm just a victim. But there are no victims. And you see this going on all over the place. Um, how on earth did the slaughter happen on October 7 by Hamas? And then like two days later, uh, people are celebrating that slaughter, basically in the name of victimhood. There are no victims. Uh, to be a victim is to essentially say, I'm not responsible. Victims are responsible, oppressors are responsible before the Lord. And I would highly encourage you not to think of yourself in a victim kind of way. Um, it will not do you any good. So self-indulgence is the first stop that the religious love to make on the pathway of judgment. And as they continue down that path, they're going to make another stop if they continue in their self-indulgence. And that is self-deception. Self-deception, from indulgence to deception. Everyone who continues in sin is on some level or at some level self-deceived. Now look at the next verses, starting in verse 4. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, and offer a thank offering also from that which is leaven. And call for free will offerings, cause them to be heard about. For so you love to do so, you sons of Israel, declares Lord Yahweh. This is a good example of why we can't just rip verses um, out of context in the Bible. Uh, you could just imagine some preacher using this verse in a good way. Hey, bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. I'm sure some prosperity gospel has used that uh, to line his own pockets. But this is clearly sarcastic. Uh, this is what was going on. They were sinning, living a selfish, indulgent lifestyle. Judgment was coming. And what they were doing along the way? Walking into God's house, acting as if everything was okay. That is the epitome of being deceived. If you can continue in sin and then walk into the very place which is supposed to be about worshiping God, and have no fear, you are deceived. And that deception will lead you all the way to judgment. Amos sarcastically invites the recipients of God's wrath to continue to engage in hypocritical worship. Go ahead, 
keep going to God's house. And worst of all, was not the oppression or their refusal to care for the poor, but their ability to do all of this while acting as if they were worshiping God. Brought their sacrifices. They tithed three times a day. There were thank offerings, free will offerings. In other words, on the outside, they looked pretty good. Patting themselves on the back. The question is, why do evil people continue to engage in religious activity? Why do they do this? Why continue like this? And the answer is because they had deceived themselves into thinking they were right before God, and also they loved the praise of men. If you can continue like this, what are you looking for? You're looking for praise. You're looking for a good name. The application, don't bring a thank offering when what you should be bringing is a guilt offering. That's the wrong offering. Don't go into God's house when you're living in habitual sin and say thank you to God as if you cared when what you should be doing is coming on your knees bringing a guilt offering, saying, Father, forgive me for my sin. You have nothing to be thankful for if you're living in habitual sin because God's wrath is coming. And you might be able to fool everyone around you with the charade, but you will not be able to fool God. Maybe a good example of this, you can turn over to Luke 18, is found in a parable that Jesus told. He's telling this parable to help the Pharisees see that although they thought of themselves as righteous, they were actually in a very dangerous position. And he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, Luke 18, 9. Viewed others with contempt. Most likely that's what's going on in Amos. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying these things to himself. Notice the thankfulness. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. In other words, you can just imagine the people of Bashan, and as they're looking outwardly religious, here's the poor that they've oppressed, either firsthand or secondhand, Thank you, Father, that I am not like those people. I fast, I pay tithes. But then look, the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What they should have done is humbled themselves and recognized that they were not only on the same level as the people they were oppressing, but they were far worse off. David communicates something similar in Psalm 51, Psalm 51, 16. For you do not delight in a sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Solomon ramps it up, Proverbs 21, 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent, 
What's evil intent? When you bring a sacrifice, you're bringing it to bring glory to yourself. It's all over the place. Isaiah 111. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams. The blood of bulls, lambs, goats, I take no pleasure. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? He goes on to say, your hands, even though you multiply prayers, are full of blood. I will not listen. Solomon gets it right when he says in Ecclesiastes 5.1, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Do not offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. To continue to live in habitual sin, while at the same time engaging in habitual, hypocritical worship, is a dangerous activity. It is to ramp up the sin to another level. You're adding more fuel so that God's wrath might burn all the more hotly against you. And God will not be mocked. Obadiah 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, your high houses, in your lofty dwelling place. The rich, is always, they, the rich always live up high. Okay, If you go to L.A., they live in the mountains. The, the poor live in the valleys. That's how it works. Same thing. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Before you sacrifice, before you go to church, look carefully at what you are offering. Make sure it is acceptable before the Lord. You must allow the Lord to search out your heart, lest you deceive yourself into thinking that you can deceive God. You cannot live like that. To live like that is to live upon a false reality. And that kind of false reality is not easily broken out of. In fact, God awards that kind of deception with more delusion. That's our next point, self-delusion. You're going to continue down that kind of deceptive route? He's going to send a delusion. From self-deception to self-delusion. When you deceive yourself long enough, you begin to live in a false reality, a delusion. Look at verse 6. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all of your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. And I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until the harvest. Then I would send rain on one city and on another I would not send rain. One portion would be rained on while the portion not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would wander around to another city to drink water. But would not be satisfied, yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. I struck you with scorching wind and mildew, and the gnawing locust was devouring your gardens and vineyards and fig trees and olive trees, yet you've not returned to me, declares Yahweh. I said a pestilence among you after the manner of Egypt. I killed your choice men by the sword with captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up even in your nostrils, yet you've not returned to me, declares Yahweh. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand delivered from the blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. 
Evidence of their self-delusion is seen in the repetition of the phrase, yet you have not returned to me, declares Yahweh. Repeated five times, and each time it indicates a refusal to repent despite the Lord's discipline. Five times that's repeated, and Amos reveals five ways that God sought to bring discipline, corrective discipline, against Israel's delusional actions. The first one was this cleanness of teeth. This is describing famine. You had no food. This is why their teeth were clean. In all your cities, you lacked bread, yet you have not returned to me. Next one's drought. He withheld rain. People are wandering around to different cities. Hey, do you have water? Do you have water? Do you have water? People are dying of thirst. Some people survived. Yet, you've not returned to me. Failed crops. I struck you with scorching wind, mildew. There are locusts. Everything died. You had no food again. Yet, you would not return to me. Death, verse 10. Pestilence is sent. Just like Egypt, your choice men, the strongest of you, are dying. Captured horses. I made the stench of death rise up to your nostrils. Yet, you would not return to me. Fire, I overthrew you just like Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is great destructive fire. And not only that, as you're in the fire, I plucked you out and delivered you. There's judgment and mercy in all of this. Yet, you're so delusional, deluded, you would not return to me. And you were like a firebrand delivered from a blaze. That's a great statement. If you're a Christian, this is your experience. This is how you should see yourself. A burning stick snatched from the fires of hell for God's redemption, repurposed for God's use. As I was studying this, I came across a story, John Wesley. I don't know if you all know who John Wesley is. He was a contemporary of George Whitfield. Um, both of them had a major part in the revivals and the awakenings that happened at that time. At the age of five, John Wesley's home caught on fire in the middle of the night. The children were removed safely from the home. But when they were counted, they noticed they were missing one. John was missing. A neighbor, farmer nearby, spotted John looking out from the upstairs window amid the leaping flames. Several neighbors climbed up on each other's shoulders till one man was finally able to pull the little boy out. And as soon as they got down to the ground, the house exploded into flames. Later, for the rest of his life actually, Wesley referred to himself as a brand plucked from the burning fire. And this was Israel's experience. They were plucked from the fire. They deserved the fire. God plucked them out. And every single one of you in here deserves the fire. God plucked you out. He plucked you out so that you could be used for Him. So that you could obey His commandments and live a life that was pleasing to Him. And yet, though this was Israel's experience... They were too deluded by their own pride and by their own false sense of righteousness to stop and to consider whether or not they had been the cause of all of these judgments. 
That's true, not every natural disaster means that you have sinned in some way. But regardless, you should still consider, is there something that I might need to repent of? The humble consider that. That was Jesus' point in Luke 13, right? We were talking about people who had died because the Tower of Siloam had fell, and people were talking about perhaps these people were great sinners. And Jesus said, no, 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 that's not the point. It's not that they were any worse. Actually, everybody's a sinner. So here's the point. I tell you, you need to repent. And if you don't repent, you also will perish. And so you look at tragedies that happen, and the point is not that, oh my goodness, that's tragic. They must have done something bad, or how could God ever do that? No, the point is we're all deserving of judgment. One day we will die. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, you need to repent, or you too will likewise perish. That's the point. Those in Amos' day, suppose they were righteous because they did not die when God sent His judgments, and they refused to repent. Perhaps you don't consider whether or not you need to repent because you think someone else needs to repent. That's a delusion. Perhaps you don't consider that you need to repent because God has shown you kindness. That is a delusion. Perhaps you don't consider that you need to repent because in comparison to everyone else, you seem pretty good. That's a delusion. Perhaps you don't consider that you need to repent because calamity fell on someone else and not you. That's a delusion. Perhaps you don't consider that you need to repent because you consider yourself to be a victim. That is a delusion. Repentance is always the point. I tell you, Jesus said, no, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. So don't delude yourself by continuing down that path towards judgment and refusing to repent even when God sends warnings. That's the point. So self-indulgence, self-deception, the self-delusion, and now the biggest deception and delusion of all, self-reliance. Self-reliance. Therefore, Amos 4.12, Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to men what are his thoughts, he makes the dawn into gloom and treads on the high places on the earth. Yahweh, God of hosts, is his name. Self-reliance. They were unwilling to return to God. So what God says is, okay, you want to play this game? You want to live upon your works? You think you're good without me? Prepare to meet me. Let's do it. Bring it on. You want to rely on yourself? Okay. Prepare to meet me. And then he describes. This is one more mercy. He's describing himself. Okay, you want to know what this fight is going to be like? Let me describe who I am. I am your creator, he says. Behold, I am the one who formed the mountains and creates the wind. If you look up, you see that mountain? Yeah, I did that. You feel that wind? You don't know where it comes from? I did that. What can you do? Also, I know your thoughts. I know your evil thoughts. No one else knows, I know. And I will declare to man what are his thoughts. He is the judge of all the earth. Omniscient one. Also the all-powerful one. I make dawn into gloom. Hey, the, de- the sun is rising. It's about to become really gloomy. And I tread on the high places of the earth. And then he says, we could add he is also the God of wrath. 
Yahweh, God of hosts, is his name. God of hosts is a reference uh, to war, wrath, judgment, armies. He commands the angels, prepare to meet your God. If you're in here, and you're relying upon your strength, your works, this is your fate. You're deluded. You've deceived your own self, and one day you will meet God. And let me tell you the one way you can break out of this delusion. Stop and think who God is. Just think about it for two seconds. You don't stand a chance. And He's omniscient. He knows everything. But He sent His Son. He's merciful. He's kind. He will forgive. As you're preparing, if you come to your senses, you bow to your knee, and you say, Father, forgive me. You know what He will say? I forgive you. I forgive you. None of this has to be the case. He will forgive. He pardons. But He will not pardon those who do not see their sin and come to Him. So this passage is a reminder that opportunities to repent of sin will not last forever. His patience will not last forever. Jesus makes this point after telling about the parable of the tower falling. And I'll, I'll end with this and to make a few comments. He's just said, no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And then he says this in Luke 13, 6. And he was telling them this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? He answered and he said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in it manure. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. What's the application? If there's someone in the church, they're hearing God's Word, they should be bearing fruit, but there's no fruit coming. There's a day coming where Jesus, the Lord Himself, will say, that's enough. I've had enough. Cut it down. Cut it down. Prepare to meet your God. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The question is, how do you meet Him? And the answer is, only through Christ. The application of all this, don't be deceived. Don't be self-reliant. Don't be a deluded person. Don't feed on your own selfish desires. Feed on the Word. And if you feed on the Word, if you depend upon Christ, then one day you will meet Him, and that meeting will be very different than the meeting of judgment that we've just covered today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It's heavy, but it's true. And Father, may we first apply it to our own hearts. We desire to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Father, we desire to use the gifts that You've given us, and the money that You've given us, to help others, to share with those who are in need. 
Father, keep us from the selfish, indulgent lifestyles that are all around us in this country. From the kind of lifestyle that would feed and live on constant entertainment. And Father, let us ask the harder questions, and that is, what do you require of us? What do you desire? Father, as there are so many that are lost and dying and perishing all around us, deceived and deluded, uh, give us wisdom and opportunities in sharing your word. And Father, I pray that you would open eyes for your glory, not for ours. We pray all of this in your Son's name. Amen.